the role of an advisory board is to really put the quality of thinking, it's ultimately a thinking system, before decisions are made and separating out the difference between problem solving and decision making. And I think where we're seeing the growth and the utilisation of advisory board in every corner of the market, in the startup scale-up market, in the business sector, which is the homeland for advisory boards, as well as in corporatized environments. It's just creating space for different decisions to be made. Welcome to the Thriving in Complexity podcast. I'm your host, Suzanne Libertilia, and I'd love for you to join me as I peek behind the scenes of complex situations and workplaces and interview leaders and experts who will challenge your thinking, inform and inspire your leadership so you and your team can thrive in the volatile, uncertain, complex and ambiguous world we live in. Louise Brokman is an award-winning entrepreneur, researcher and business advisor with industry and government recognition for her contribution to the Australian business sector. Louise has the unique advantage of having been on both sides of the table, in the shoes of a founder and that of a chair of multiple advisory boards. After establishing an advisory board in 2005 for her own business, Louise recognised firsthand how a well-run advisory board can positively impact CEOs and the business at large. Upon exiting her multinational business, Louise served as chair for commercial advisory boards before starting her second business. Now, as the founder and CEO of the Advisory Board Centre, Louise facilitates leading executive education programs for incredibly ambitious, progressive and committed advisory board members, supporting their professional development and, in turn, the businesses they serve. Louise, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. It's such a pleasure to have you here. It's great to be here. Thanks for the invitation, Suzanne. And look, I'm really interested in this conversation because I think advisory boards are certainly a really emerging area and I think it's a great opportunity for our listeners to get their heads around something that is you know, emerging in the complexity of the businesses and organisations that everyone's involved with. But before we get into that, I wonder, is there something about you that most people wouldn't know? (laughs) Well, Suzanne, you know I live and eat and breathe advisory boards (laughs) and so so that's been what what I'm most known for. But I did actually have a previous uh, work history, started my first business when I was 19 years old, but had the absolute pleasure of working for Qantas Australian Resorts and I managed island resorts on the Great Barrier Reef for many years. So the beautiful Dunk Island and Great Keppel Island resorts, not only managing the resort, but also the national parks, the barge, the flights, the airstrip and everything that goes with managing a community. And so it was just a really wonderful experience to have. And I know if people look at what are the island resorts in Australia today, we've sort of unfortunately probably passed their heyday but I remember a number of wonderful, wonderful holidays on some of those island resorts. They were just magic. Yeah, it was a very special time, I think. And I think there's great opportunity for the ecotourism and sustainable tourism to really come back with, with a vengeance on some of them. It's uh, sad seeing them, with some of them just deteriorating and being left 
to be idle and really a danger. But at the time when they were operating, it was a very special time in Australian tourism. Yes. In a global environment, yeah. Yes, yes. Now, I know you mentioned you're very well known for your role in advisory boards, but I wonder, some of our listeners probably hear an awful lot about traditional governance boards and their role in governing organisations, but they might not necessarily know what an advisory board is or even be aware that we're seeing such a strong emergence of advisory boards in recent years. Did you want to just give our listeners a little bit of a quick overview about what an advisory board is and why you think we're seeing such a rise in their popularity? It's really common that not understanding what advisory boards are, but also assuming what they are. So in the most simple context, Suzanne, where a governance board is a decision-making model, it's binding, it's in a serious undertaking, and rightly so. It's binding on directors. They can go to jail for the decisions that are made or not made at the governance board table. But it's also binding on the organisation to implement based on those decisions that are made by a board of directors. An advisory board is not a decision-making model. It's a problem-solving model. So the decision-making stays with the organisation. Now, what happens in that is that when it's a problem-solving model, then it's evaluating options, it's road-testing ideas, it's pulling ideas apart and bringing them back together again. And so the role of an advisory board is to really put the quality of thinking, it's ultimately a thinking system, before decisions are made and separating out the difference between problem-solving and decision-making. And I think where we're seeing the growth and the utilisation of the advisory board in every corner of the market, in the start-up, scale-up market, in the business sector, which is the homeland for advisory boards, as well as in corporatized environments. It's just creating space for different decisions to be made. And the market is demanding for different decisions, but it's very difficult to do that if you're constrained, both in time as well as the agenda, and making difficult decisions about the future without having that time and that space to have non-fiduciary conversations. Mm. And so the, the market is just expanding in all of these because the future is different. And so we need to have different conversations to be able to make different decisions in a way that's also going to be safe mm. in the eyes of the market and to do the right thing in organisations, both in something that's viable but also sustainable. Yeah, And it's not an either-or proposition is it when it comes to governance boards and advisory boards in actual fact a lot of directors are realizing that they can actually minimize some of their liabilities by making really effective use of advisory boards when they're making decisions that's right what are you seeing happening there well it is an old argument about advisory boards or governance boards it is an and and if we go back to the responsibilities and the exposure that governance board directors have is that they don't go to jail because they made a good or bad decision. They go to jail because they don't show due process in the way the decision is made. And so advisory boards have this absolute new space in the market now, Suzanne, where it's creating that safe zone to have those conversations in different ways. And you know, with the right frameworks and best practice in place so that you've got the right ethical boundaries in the way that it's utilised. But it then creates that 
process accountability, if you like, mm. for directors. Not just to say they tick a box and just saying we've done this process and that's okay and justifies a bad decision. It's really putting the parameters around quality, independent thinking Mm -hmm. with robust debate where there's intellectual honesty in that conversation so that there is a genuine different impact as a result. Mm -hmm. And have you seen an increase in organisations that have both types of boards over recent years? Uh, there's been a marked increase and I can't give away too much right at the moment, Suzanne, but the next yeah. state of the market report is being released in May and we've just finished the data gathering around what's going on in the market. Yeah. But advisory boards, if we just look at you know generally what they are, you get different versions of best practice advisory boards because they have to be fit for purpose. Yes. And so you get advisor panels, which are really fluid and flexible for environments that are volatile, right? So startups love the whole project advisory boards. Then you get all of business advisory boards that the advisory board is there to really oversee the quality of thinking to inform the strategy. Now, where the big shift in the market is project advisory boards, both in the business sector as well as corporatized advisory boards, where they are really purpose-driven. And so you've got a specific purpose, a specific function for that advisory board, mm. which means you've got a lot of flexibility around that because it could be for a short period of time, could be a long period of time, but they've got the agility to be able to move with the changing needs of, a, of an organisation, whatever its size, and still be fit for purpose and still be best practice. But you've got that agility. You're not fixed into a structure that governance boards mm. are very much constrained by you know, what the regulatory environment is and what the expectations are, whereas advisory boards can really have a specific purpose for a specific reason for a particular time, and that's exciting. And it is, and like I have first-hand experience of that and I know that you actually practice what you preach because I've been on a project advisory board <laughs> for an area that you're, an area that you were really interested in exploring and doing a lot more thinking around. Yeah. And Suzanne, look at that. That was a four-month advisory board chosen for a specific need and really having rigorous debate. You can put a lot of energy into it when it's a fixed period of time because you can do that as well as because you're actually reaching to a point. Because generally a project advisory board is trying to get through something or to something. Mm. And you could see the amount of energy and focus that people can put around that table and look at the results that we were able to achieve Mm. in the quality of thinking to inform the strategy that we had as an organisation. Yeah. Now, Louise, I'm really curious, how did you actually come to establish the advisory board centre? And maybe tell the people a little bit more about its role as that sort of leading international professional body for advisory board or advisory professionals. Yeah, yeah. So the genesis story is that in my previous business, we wanted to really grow. We had the opportunity to really grow and I was making decisions in that business and I wasn't sure whether it was a good decision or not. Right? And so you're making decisions, you go, is that good? I don't know. I'm going to make it anyway. And I just thought, <laughs> that's just not good enough. And so I, w- I wanted to make sure that we were strong, we were deliberate, we were conscious about the decisions that we were making because when you're confident in the decisions that you make, you don't go and change your mind. 
And so when you're investing in a global strategy as we were, we wanted to be truly committed to that. And so I thought, well, I'm going to need to have really good people around me, people that I really deeply admire, respect. And I thought, I need an advisory board. Didn't really know what one was. And so I put one together and it was it was life-changing for me. And what was interesting in that is that it wasn't because we were deficient. It's because we wanted to do it well. And, you know, we grew that business to 135 offices in eight countries in that five years. And I knew that that advisory board was there for the business, but part of the charter was to ensure that they were also there for me. So with any entrepreneur, you know, you've got to be able to survive your own ambition and ensure that balance is there, which is always a constant challenge when you're really deeply excited about what you're doing. Mm. So that advisory board was terrific for me. And I thought, if it can do that for me, what can it do for other people? And so we decided to invest five years to research, test and validate advisory boards globally. And part of that research was traveling to uh, 17 countries and interviewing 430 consulting firms Mm. to really evaluate how were consulting services being consumed and what would the trends be for the future. So that's when we found there was no professional body looking after the advisory board sector at all in the world. So governance boards are being and directors are looked after by their company director institutes in globally. Accountants and lawyers are being looked after by their professional bodies. But advisory board sector has been around since the beginning of time. And yet no one was looking after it. No one was nurturing it and supporting it and bringing it together. And that's when we decided to undertake that role. That was also challenging to Suzanne. So you can imagine trying to bring together a sector that just likes doing their own thing. Mm. And because of the agility of advisory boards that can work in so many different ways, how do you bring the sector together? Because best practice standards don't work because there are so many different ways it can apply. And so the secret to that was the real development of the best practice principles, uh, which is the ethical foundations as to what are the what are the foundations and how can they be adapted to make it fit for the environment that uh, that they're in, and that was really quite a game changer for us to to do that because that then provided a common um, foundation for the sector to be able to learn from each other to collaborate, but then still be able to make advisory boards and not constrain them because of their flexibility and the diversity that they have. Yeah. And Louise, I know that you're based here in Brisbane where I am. However, it really truly is an international community that you're supporting, isn't it? I know when I did my certified chairs program, we had people from different places, you know, all sorts of parts of the world in that one online, you know, certification program. So would you like to sort of give people a sense of just where there are advisory board centre members around the world? Yeah, well, it, it is really exciting. It's really capturing the hearts and minds of people who are leaders in their field that want to be part of the future conversation and problem solve for the future. So we select less than 10% of those to, that apply to join us. And that's really important because... Not everyone should be providing advice. It's not a job, it's a vocation. 
And you've got to ensure that you ethically evaluate yourself whether you are the right fit for that organisation, both with skill set, experience, connections, but also in time. Mm. And so our advisory board members with us selecting our community uh, so carefully enables collaboration to be fast-tracked, if you like, because there's a high level of trust within that. Mm. Due diligence needed, as always, but a high level of trust And so we've got about over 500 members in over 23 countries now, you know, from the managing partner of Deloitte in Mexico to the CEO of uh, Coca-Cola, who I'm catching up with uh, tomorrow afternoon (laughs) in uh, Shanghai, to the senior vice president of Unilever in Singapore, the head of the Climate Change Authority here in Australia, just as an example of the type of people that we have. And you look at what any given day is like. This morning I had meetings at 6 o'clock this morning with executives in New York, in Vietnam. I just met with the advisory board community in Auckland this afternoon. <laughs> and here with you today, you know, it's yes, it really yes. is. It, it's exciting that people want to be part of the whole thinking system about the future. And it's not about a gig, but it's about the quality of thinking and contribution. And I think I heard you use the word community. I mean, there are all little communities of advisory board centre people around the world. I know we regularly have a quarterly catch-up where we get together with fellow advisors and do professional development and explore ethical questions and other issues. And that doesn't just happen here in Queensland. You've got that happening all around the world. Yeah, and it's amazing what that globalisation, but acting locally, it's a peer community. None of us can do it on our own. But Suzanne, look at the community you're involved in, the global community, you're involved in the Brisbane community, and you're involved in the aged care best practice community. We've got our first meeting together for this this really important meeting for the aged care sector next week, Mm -hmm. where we really need to think very carefully through the regulations and how they're being applied to the most vulnerable customer in the market. Yes. This is great to have the opportunity for us to be able to, to contribute this way. No, no. Look, and really important conversations, and I'd love to circle back around to that as we talk. But I wonder if people are sort of probably curious about, well, what types of organisations would typically use an advisory board? Do I need to be some big organisation like Coca Cola, or I'm just a you know, a small organisation? Is an advisory board for me? So, what sort of organisations are you typically? seeing using advisory boards and do they always go by that name? Mm. Both really good questions. So if we look at the market, advisory boards is not the answer to everything, Suzanne. I'd love it to be, (laughs) but it's not. (laughs) You've got to be careful about the way that you scope an advisory board and the way it's established and that's why there's so much effort in best practice in the establishment phase. We get that piece right. And during the establishment phase, you can work out whether an advisory board is actually right for that organisation or if they need something else. So you get times when they go, oh, actually, we don't, an advisory board's not going to be strong enough. We need a governance board or we need specialist consulting, which is very different to advice, or you need an expert legal advice or something around the level of expertise. So that's just putting it out there that an advisory board is, is not an answer to everything. But The startup and scale-up community is advisor panel models are a great model to be able to use. 
So they were able to create non-demand environment but still have really good ethical frameworks around it. So that really works well. Then in the business market, you've, you have a standard best practice advisory board which may work with the business for up to three years when they might have four or six meetings a year. An independent chair is really critical to maintain that momentum uh, inside, inside that business and what they're committed to doing. And then you get the project advisory boards, which are driven by very different factors. In the corporate market, they're very much issue or purpose-led around things like sustainability, climate change, the response to COVID was a, was a big one. So you get all that stakeholder engagement piece in the corporatized environment. In the business sector, they're like project advisory boards that are around a particular strategy, which might be around entering a new market, a commercialization of a new idea, testing a new product or service. So there's there's really interesting sort of environments and it's unlimited, right? It's just that you just see it pop up everywhere about how they're being used. And the ones that I'm most excited about in the future is the increased adaptation of advisory boards around next generation and also the customer advisory board, both from a a push perspective because it's regulated or a pull perspective because organisations are wanting to co-create their product or service with their customer. And I think that's just a really smart strategy. Yeah, yeah. And if someone's wondering whether or not an advisory board is for them, everyone who's a certified chair is actually well-trained in the use of a, a very consistent approach around assessing what sort of support an organization might need and working through to come out the other end and go, is an advisory board right for you or one of these other options right? Mm. And you might realize that you've got a good connection with a particular chair, but I know chairs are very, very good at working out, now that I know what this organization needs, am I the right person? And when they know they're not the right person or they know that they've got to help the organization find a range of other specific advisors, you provide a pretty special service in the advisor concierge. Do you want to tell people about that? Yeah, thank you, Suzanne. We're really proud of the advisor concierge. So when organizations don't know what they need or who they need, or you have an advisory board professional that might say, you need something, but I can't, I'm not the right person for you. It's a free service that we provide and it really helps them to identify what are their ambitions and what are their priorities that they have for their organisation for the future. And then we evaluate their different structures that might work and we road test our thinking around that. And then from that, we then scope out what the advisory board function could look like, what kind of backgrounds of advisors could help them to unlock that strategy but then also what kind of structure would work from them Mm. from an agile structure to a fixed one and that creates opportunities for our members to apply but businesses or organizations once they've scoped that out with us they can use that to go back out to their own community to choose they don't have to choose someone who's certified through us and I think that's really important yeah that's a free service that we provide and We've curated over a 1,000 advisory board events in the last two and a half years. Uh, So we give away about a million dollars worth of services a year to the market. And the reason that we do that is that organisations are really brave when they're wanting to take on a new function. And 95% of organisations, when they go through the advisor concierge service, have never done it before. 
And so I think they are really brave. So if we can get organisations really clear around what their expectations are, invest that time first around their expectations about what an advisory board is and what it isn't, then by the time they engage an external advisor, they're going to get much more value and in turn more impact from the, the structure that they choose to take on. And that service has been, it was designed originally for the business market, but organisations of publicly listed companies, governments around the world are using that service that uh, we go, that's really exciting. <laughs> that it is that sounding board and that independent shock absorber, if you, if you like, between the what organisations are looking for and the advisory community so that when that match is made between each other, we're not a recruiter, we're not a broker, we don't take fees, so that we maintain our level of independence in that process to really safeguard the interaction Mm. in this. Advisory board engagements is not a transaction, it's a relationship. Yeah. And so this is why it's very different to, say, a matching platform, which may use AI, which will will be increasingly used in this market for sure, but still relationships and trust are really important. But, Suzanne, I just want to come back to your previous question, that when you scope out an advisory board, the title of advisory board may actually not be the right title for it. Mm -hmm. So it may be an advisory body, it might be an advisory council, it may be called a think tank, it may be called a committee. So when you look at a lot of governance structures, as you well know, a lot of committees don't actually understand, are we an advisory function or a governance (laughs) one? We don't know. And so getting clarity around what is the purpose of the advisory board, what's the structure, and then what are the people, all really determine sort of what should it be called to make it really fit for the environment it's in. Yeah. And to me, you've raised a really important point. It's not just about what it's called, it's about what is its purpose in its charter? What does the organisation set down before the advisors all come together to make sure everyone's really, really clear? What are the roles? What are the boundaries? You know, what are the things that we're focusing on? How are we going to do that? And making sure that that charter is very fit for purpose. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. 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 And I know you and I have also had a conversation before about some of the challenges when we're working with not-for-profit boards that are traditional governance boards and then organisations realising that they would like to have an advisory board to work with them, particularly through growth or a significant organisational change, but the non-executive directors who are voluntary non-executive directors can sometimes be quite uncomfortable with the idea of someone else being paid to be on a board. And so really understanding what is the function of the advisory board. And as you were saying, it's probably a little bit more like a project advisory board or something like that, where you're actually bringing together a group of experts on a particular issue to provide quite targeted and specific and contained thinking support to the organization. So really, you know, not getting caught up in the name, but focusing much more on the function and the role of those people that you're bringing in to work with the organization for that set period of time. Yeah. And that takes a really considered approach, doesn't it? Mm. And careful mapping and being respectful of what exists. Yes. 
because in, especially in larger organisations, you've got to map it. You're creating a new space mm. where there are already a lot of players. You've got to think about the executive. You've got to think about the board of directors mm. and all the other stakeholders that, that are involved in it and think, can we actually solve this with what we've got mm. or do we need something else to make it not necessarily as well as but make it better? Yeah. And, yeah, there's a lot of respect that's needed in that process. And if I reflect on what I think some of the differences are and having sort of engaged with a number of boards, boards are about also holding to account and sometimes that holding to account type of focus, the relationship with the CEO and the executive can actually get in the way of creating a really constructive thinking environment. And so what you were saying before about it being, you know, relationships are so critical to this, you need those relationships so that you can enter into that partnership to actually develop that environment where it is good quality thinking, Mm. where you, you can have a diverse range of perspectives, there can be respectful dissent to actually challenge thinking and expand thinking and insert new possibilities into the way that the members of the advisory board who are employees of the organization, you know, how they're thinking and taking the the outcomes of those conversations back and applying that in their their normal day-to-day roles as an executive. Mm. And when we're thinking about organizations in a from a leadership perspective, often governance boards given a bad rap because of directors not necessarily being independent of each other because they appear on multiple boards together. And advisory boards, we need to be also careful of that because advisory board members need to be independent mostly of the organisation and of each other. So when does that independence get frayed when you're working together in multiple environments or thinking together? And you get a point, too, where you get too close. And I know as a chair, uh, and I don't chair advisory boards anymore, and I miss it dearly, and I I can't wait to get back to it, but I had a use-by date, and everyone has, and my use-by date was 18 months because I would get too close. I would fall in love with the business. Mm -hmm. I'd be a champion for it, and and you lose that objectivity. And I think advisory board members themselves need to think about the way that they interact with each other. So you have that intellectual honesty and that diversity of thinking around the table, but then also know when the job is done. You go, actually, I've given everything that I can. You actually now need something else. Mm. And so the review of an advisory board, at least annually by a chair with the organisation and measuring impact one way or another Mm. are all great ways to be able to keep the advisory board fresh, alive, yeah. dynamic, yeah. exciting. Yeah. Yeah. So because that leads me to my next question, which is, you know, what can people actually do to ensure their business or organization's advisory board is operating in their interests? A few things that I, I think is important. One is the recruitment of an independent chair. You get a quality advisory board, you've got a quality charter you have a quality chair that's been chosen fit for purpose for what that business needs. It's not necessarily a skills matrix. It's about a it's a priority matrix. Mm-hmm. Right? So what's a priority? What, what are the priorities for the business and recruit to that? 
And then having protocols. Now, protocols doesn't mean constraint. The simpler the advisory board function is, the better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So I think if you get those things in place and then focus on the establishment phase, then the charter captures the essence of the advisory board, what they're there to do, what they're not there to do, where the protocols and how it's going to be managed, how it's going to be reviewed. All of those simple governance frameworks around an advisory board, it keeps it safe, but it keeps it on track. Yes, yes. And one of the advantages of connecting with an advisor who is a member of the advisory board centre is that they've all given a commitment to work in accordance with the best practice framework. Yep. And that's actually accessible to anyone who's interested from your website. So we'll make sure there's a link to that in the show notes so that if they are considering looking at an advisory board, they've got some idea of what they should be looking for in how that advisory board operates. That's really important, Suzanne, and, and we, we're very happy to, to socialise that framework. Mm-hmm. The challenge and the opportunity that we have as a sector, and I'm talking about the advisory board sector here, is that it grew 52% between 2019 and 2021, and it continues to grow. Mm-hmm. And that's terrific opportunity but it's also problematic because we have people entering the advisory board space that don't actually understand what they're doing. Now there are a lot of ethical situational ethics in advisory boards that you may not necessarily know the issue until you're sitting right on top of it. So how do you actually navigate that and do the right thing? And I think that's where the community is so important to actually know that you can actually reach out and talk to other advisors in an appropriate, confidential way and work through some of those ethical challenges with people who are also very familiar with the best practice framework. Yeah. So coming back to our earlier conversation, that really, if we think about what's been happening in Australia in recent years, we've seen a number of royal commissions. So we've had the Royal Commission into the banking sector, the aged care sector, they've both reported now. Disability sector is still underway. But what we're starting to see is a change or a difference in government's approach to how they respond to those commission recommendations. And that does really have some implications for organisations and the advisory sector. So we've seen some new aged care regulations that actually place obligations on service providers to make use of advisors. So just I know that this is an area where you've done a lot of work and a lot of thinking because you're really very committed to ensuring that the regulations result in a better quality of care experience for people who are receiving services in the aged care sector. So I'm sure people would be interested in what you've been doing in that space and how you potentially see that playing out for other areas where we're seeing government considering the impact of these sorts of of these royal commissions on people who are experiencing vulnerability in their life. Mm. It is interesting, Susanna, you're, you're close to it yourself. So when we have a royal commission and bringing out regulations for advisory bodies to be put in place means that what's been happening to date is not good enough. 
And so we're talking about people's lives here and the most vulnerable in our community. And so the regulations is the most foundational thing of minimum practice of what needs to be in place. So when we're looking at regulations around advisory bodies, we obviously want to do the right thing, but it's not just a tick and flick exercise of a compliance factor. This is a care factor, not a compliance one. And so the challenge that I think we've got in these now newly regulated environments is for providers to say, oh, we're actually already doing that. And so let's just rebadge what we're already doing. Now, if that was the case, we wouldn't have had the Royal Commission coming out with these, with implementing advisory bodies. What they're looking for is something different and something that's better than not replacing a title of what, what already exists. And so I think providers, and without judgment, they do an incredible job. And it's a tricky market to be in where many of them are operating at a loss. So how do they do that? And I think it's been really important in the way that we've built the aged care community around advisory boards is to be as practical as possible in the way that we view what best practice is and how it can be applied. Mm. So it is going to be impactful for what the regulations are there for. And at the moment, we've got the aged care best practice community and it will evolve over time into, I think, into, you know, the healthcare, uh, health and life sciences area as the vulnerable customer definition gets, you know, it broadens out, as you mm. said, disability services, childcare, and, you know, other markets will, will be wrapped into that as well. The role of this best practice community is so important that where we have our quarterly meetings, Suzanne, evaluating what does good look like as providers and external chairs are working with organisations in implementing best practice, we are going to learn a lot. So the advisory board sector formally has really only been a sector for six years. We know as an organisation we've got a 100-year strategy, so we've got 94 years to go. <laughs> <laughs> so a bit of time ahead of us. But for this, the benchmarking for the aged care sector, we need to learn fast and we need to learn as a community from each other mm. as we understand what the pressure points are, which there are going to be many. Mm. And we need to be remind ourselves of our own humanity in supporting organisations as they're having to implement this change, which is a different behaviour when normally an organisation will put an advisory board in place because they want to have it. This is now an environment where they have to have it. Yes. And so that change in motivation is going to create natural pressure points here. And so we need to really do this with a lot of care and a lot of compassion for both the customer as well as for the providers. Mm. And for organisations, I think they've got until the end of 2023 to get some of these new structures in place. If you're with an organisation and listening to this podcast and have no idea where to start... The great thing is the Advisory Board Centre has already done a lot of work around, you know, what would a typical charter look like? You know, there is training available. So there are 
supports that are actually out there to enable those organizations to get off on the right foot and then make sure that their people are actually connected into that community of advisors who are really grappling with this. Mm. And simplifying as much as possible so that aged care advisory board that, Suzanne, you're a very important part of, that establishment of the three-step process in establishing the frameworks Mm. means that it's not overcomplicated, but there are really some clear parameters around what good looks like. Yes, yes. And if they do have things in place, thinking about how are they then incorporated? Yeah. You know, what's the relationship between the different bodies that exist within the organization to contribute to the overall quality governance of care for people who receive services? Yeah. Yeah. So I know you mentioned the state of the market report is coming out, so I won't ask you to disclose all of the really interesting things that are coming out. But what we will do in the show notes is put a link in so people can find the previous state of the market report where that is, but so that when you release it in May, they can go to the show notes if they happen to be listening to this then, and they can get the new state of the market report hot off the presses. But Louise, on a more personal note, in your own words, what does thriving in complexity mean to you? I think complexity is a, it's an interesting word and I think it gets confused between what's complicated versus what's complex. Mm. What's complicated means that you can figure it out, right? There's process accountability around something that's complicated. When something is complex means it's less about process accountability, more about impact accountability. And so when something's complex, it also means that there's not one approach or one answer. There are many different options and there is no right or wrong. And so complexity is where the current market is and why advisory boards are thriving Mm -hmm. in this market because when there's not one answer, that's when advisory boards and problem solving and evaluating different options is is the right mechanism for that. Yeah. So complexity is a wonderful way to be able to really think about volatility, that most people would think about volatility. Mm. But complexity means, I think, the opportunity for new decisions and new types of decisions. Mm. It's an opportunity to step back and not just jump in and make the decision that we've always made. Yes. And do it differently. And so that's where I think the thriving in complexity means that potentially we have to go slow to go faster later on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I just thinking back to what you were sharing about the organization that you founded and as the CEO of that organization, just probably what enabled you to thrive in that environment was surrounding yourself with a range of people that you could really test and expand your thinking. You could actually probe what was happening, make sense of things, try different experiments, adjust, adapt. And you probably, when you started that process, had no idea exactly what you were going to look like by the time you were finished. But putting that support structure around you created the environment where you could do that really good quality thinking and you know, take some steps that enabled you to grow in the direction that you wanted. 
Mm. And, and it's not a competitive conversation, right? And so yeah. it's not that they know more than me. Mm. I need to know my business. Yes. And so I deeply respected and admired them. So to be held to account to a group of people that I really deeply respected and admired, you know, when you're an employee, if you're not doing a good job, you don't have a job anymore. Mm. As a business owner, if you don't do a good job, you know, you go, oh, well, <laughs> too bad, you know. And so... It is quite a humbling experience Yes, when you've got an advisory board that holds you to account. Yeah. And so, Louise, were you ever faced with a complex situation that afterwards you wish you had managed differently? It's a really good question. If I go back to your original question about things that people may not know about me, managing an island resort is everything happening at once. You're not managing a business, you're managing a community. And I think about one situation we had on Dunk Island. We had a cyclone that kept on circling back. And then we, in the middle of that, we had a fire in the maintenance area, the laundry, and God forbid, the liquor storage, which was... (laughs) Not a good mix with fire. (laughs) Not, not with fire and, and not with not with staff on an island who love to party, right? And so, but anyway, the, it was a three-day, three days without sleep when that fire occurred to try and solve that because the cyclone was coming back, right? And so we had employee safety, we had guest safety, we had major health and safety issues with regards to food that was half burnt, half frozen, all the carbon monoxide from mattresses being burnt. And so it was three days without sleep and we managed to ensure everybody was safe. Mm. From a leadership perspective, I think I would do things a little differently where I ensured everybody was being looked after. Mm. And also afterwards, we ensured that employees had counselling. Mm-hmm. I did that for everybody else, but not for me. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so it's an interesting thing with leadership is not that you are, the, my view on leadership is not that you're better than anybody else or you're less than anybody else. And so I think at that time I felt that as a leader I needed to make sure everybody else was okay, but I didn't look after myself. Mm. And so I think, you know, in faced with a complex situation, that leadership in a bubble, I should have really brought in the broader leadership community Yes. for us to work it together rather than me holding on to this is my responsibility mm-hmm. because I held that. I had held that as a really important part of my role is to make sure everybody was okay. Yeah. Like it's really interesting, isn't it, when you share that story and then think about the conversation we've already had today in terms of how you then evolved from that point to actually even realizing as a CEO that you needed more than you to actually lead well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Because the impact on that is not just on the organization but on yourself you have to live with yourself mm. <laughs> so yes. and then so that support around you is making sure that you're safe as well yeah so louise if you could look back and give advice to your 25 year old self <laughs> we tend to focus on that age because i sort of figure 
most people who listen to the podcast are not, you know, 17 and 18 years old, but they might be in more formative years of their career. What would you say to your 25-year-old self? I had a situation actually when I was 32 and I had to make some major decisions about the business. And I remember talking to myself and pointing to the sky saying, don't you let me down. (laughs) (laughs) Talking to my future self. So this is, I can remember that and I know what that feels like to (laughs) to have that moment. (laughs) I would say to that past myself when, when I was pointing my finger to the sky is just trusting yourself. And be kind to yourself. Remember to breathe. Mm-hmm. Remember because it's going to be a hell of a ride. And when you make a commitment in whatever you do, it can take all of you. Yes. So remembering to breathe and and know that you won't let yourself down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Back yourself. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It's a hard thing to remember sometimes. At it's such an important thing to. Look after yourself so that you've got the perspective to be able to do that. Yeah, yeah. Just the thought about I won't let you down and I'll look after you. Yeah. 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 And so if people were to remember just one thing from what we've spoken about today, what do you think they should be particularly sure to remember? I think all of us have got a responsibility for the future to be the best you know, we can be. And to do that, we've all got something to contribute, but it's in the way that we think Mm. and the way that we collaborate in our thinking so it's always better than. Yes. So I think, I'll give an example. Over Christmas I decided to sign up for Netflix Mm -hmm. (laughs) for my mother and I'd, I'd never been on Netflix. Anyway, this last weekend I turned it off because, <laughs> because you just go, where did that time go? You know, I've got better things to do. Instead of watching somebody else's life, I've got to live my own. Yeah. And to be part of the future, we need that time and space to think. Mm-hmm. So think about the way that we invest our time into living our lives and, and being part of really interesting things for the future. So allow enough time to think. And being aware of those things that are designed to suck us in. So there's a reason why Netflix doesn't require you to press play for the next episode and they have the countdown and it goes straight to. And a lot of those streaming services have the same thing and it is an intentional design feature to keep you on the platform. Yep. So turn it off. (laughs) (laughs) Live your life instead. Very sage advice. (laughs) So, Louise, obviously we'll put a link to Advisory Board Centre in the show notes, but if people are wanting to connect with you online, what's the best way for them to do that? Oh, look, I'm easily found. Anything with advisory boards, I've got my name on it. (laughs) So advisoryboardcentre.com, LinkedIn. But, you know, you're wanting to really look at the evidence and the thought leadership around advisory boards just really look at what other people say around the advisor insights and the sharing of everybody's story. Advisory boards um, and the advisory board centre, I just started it, but it really is uh, its a community effort. So talk to anyone around advisory boards and I'll be back behind it, researching it and watching what's going on. <laughs> and Megatrans Summit coming up in 
May as well. Yeah, you're going to be there, Susanna. I will be. So if someone wants to dip their toe in the water, that's a great opportunity to get together and experience what it's like firsthand to be part of a bigger thinking community. Yeah, look, the mega trends are mega and they are very targeted this year. So the growth of the advisory board sector, it's here to stay. And we need this time of thinking as a community together to make it the best it can be. Yeah. And I'm also, one of the reasons I'm really going is to find out, is there any truth to the rumour that we're going to have an advisor's band, you know? (laughs) (laughs) I have... (laughs) I did hear a rumour about that, but it won't be me, Suzanne. <laughs> so we won't see you up there as the, the front singer? Or... <laughs> Louise, Not in this lifetime. <laughs> thank you so much for your time today, and I really hope that people who've been listening feel that at the end of this time they've got a much better sense of what an advisory board is, the value that it can really bring to an organisation particularly an organisation that's facing you know, complexity. And I think what organisation today isn't. And so if people are curious, I would encourage you to go and take a closer look at the Advisory Board Centre's website. There's lots of publicly available resources and information there. And if you're keen to explore actually setting something up, there are lots of ways to connect with different certified chairs, the concierge, service and dip your toe in the water and explore what it's all about. Louise, thank you so much. You're most welcome. Thanks, Suzanne. Thanks for listening. If you had something you want to revisit or explore in more detail, you can check out the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode and you like helping others to open their thinking, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. As always, a big thank you to Leon Fitton and the team at the Podcast Concierge. That's all for this episode. I'll see you next time. Next time.